Clark Energy are proud to sponsor this event and are excited to be involved with and share the FDF's values for professionalism, excellence, integrity, collaboration and promotion of a positive working environment. All critical elements on the path to a sustainable future. As a global company, we are dedicated to delivering energy projects and can support your businesses on the road to net zero. This can be done through reducing energy costs and future-proofing your energy infrastructure with the deployment of modern, high-efficiency combined heat and power, as well as integrating with intermittent renewables and storage technologies in delivery of truly integrated hybrid energy systems. Renewable fuels will become increasingly important as we edge closer to 2050. So preparedness for changes to our traditional fuel sources is fundamental in both the primary energy and backup power sense. We are biomethane and hydrogen ready. Focusing on maximising efficiency, maintaining resiliency of operation and saving money all whilst reducing carbon emissions is a complex process to achieving ambitious net zero targets. We look forward to working with you to ensure those targets are met. Thank you very much, Emily. And it's now time for our first panel of the day, how the UK's independent trade policy can give food and drink manufacturers the edge. And if I can invite my panelists to also turn their cameras on as well, we'll get underway in a second. So obviously one of the big ambitions for the UK government uh, following the end of the transition period was to allow the country to negotiate its own trade deals. And that along with other exports issues will be the subject of our panel today. So to introduce our participants, we have Carl Nash, Head of Political and Trade Policy Brand at the Australian High Commission. We have Emily Rees, Economist and MD of Trade Strategies, and Clodagh Sherrod, Director of Food and Drink Consultancy, Leathercliffe. Unfortunately, Rupert Daniels from DIT is unable to join us due to a last minute uh, commitment today. But we have our super sub, which I'm sure even Pep Guardiola will be proud of, Dominic Goody, who is FDF's own Head of International Trade, stop shaking your head, Dominic. <laughs> so I think to, to get underway, um, can I just ask our panellists very briefly just to introduce themselves and their organisations, please? Uh, should we start with Emily? Hello, good morning. Um, my name is Emily Rees, and so I'm the Managing Director of Trade Strategies, a consultancy that specialised in international trade with focus on food and agriculture. And I'm also a senior fellow at the European Centre for International Political Economy based in Brussels. And it's a pleasure to be with you. Lovely. Thanks, Emily. And Cloda? Hi, I'm Cloda. I'm a director of Levercliffe. Um, Levercliffe is a specialist food and drink um, consultancy. Um, we work with the industry um, in terms of developing strategies, growth strategies and also um, category uh, consultancy. Thank you. And Kyle? Uh, good morning and thanks, Nikki. Uh, my name's Kyle Nash. I run the political and trade policy branch at the Australian High Commission. We're the team of diplomats who uh, cover things, everything from our strategic cooperation with the UK and, more importantly for this panel, uh, trying to get opportunities in trade policy uh, and uh, really looking forward to this panel. Thanks. Fantastic. And Dominic? Good morning, everyone. Hi, I'm Dominic Goody, Head of International Trade at the Food and Drink Federation. I uh, jointly head up FDF's industry growth team, uh, which looks at all the wonderful opportunities to grow our industry through innovation, through trade, uh, and through uh, uh, enhancing skills uh, within our industry. 
lovely thank you all very much so i think towards the end of 2020 and um, through the early part of 2021 we started to see a dip in food and drink exports which um obviously somewhat disappointing as we'd seen many many years of continuous growth um, Dominic, what would you say were some of the contributing factors to that? Is some of that Brexit related? Is it COVID? Are there, are there other factors that's been influencing the way things have, have seen a little bit of a downturn? Uh, it's a bit of both and it's been a, a hugely challenging year for the industry. Um, in my time at FDF, where I've been for 13 years or so, we've regularly produced export reports, which almost without fail celebrate growth. Uh, every single time, I think with one exception in those 13 years, it's been growth within the industry. And last year was a massive change to that. Um, the closure of the hospitality sector has been a, a really critical cause of uh, the drop in exports, which in 2020 was nearly 10% for our industry. So over £2.3 billion pounds worth of exports lost because of the closure of hospitality sectors around the world, uh, but in particular, in the EU. What we've also seen in the first few months of the year has been a massive drop off in our exports to the EU as well. So on top of the fall in uh, uh, exports driven by COVID, which is in the order of 10 to 15 percent to the EU, we've also seen that in January a lot of businesses stopped exporting for the first three, month, uh, three weeks of the month while they waited to see how the border systems coped with the new changes and tried to work out what the new agreement actually meant, having only received the details on the 26th of December. We've seen uh, the export trade has reopened since then. It's been picking up in the last few months, but there has still been quite a significant hit to our exports. We'll be publishing the Q1 data very shortly, but I think the first two months of the year, we saw, a, I think, a 75% drop to the EU, then a 41% drop to the EU. Uh, and I think we'll see that trend continue to improve, but we're probably still looking at something like a sort of 20 to 25% uh, reduction in our trade. And a lot of that is because small businesses are really struggling with the new requirements. The groupage system of moving goods into the EU has collapsed uh, for many businesses, and they're just unable to move goods because uh, the haulage firms that they previously dealt with have focused on moving furniture instead of food and drink because it's easier and more profitable for them to do that. Um, on top of that, on the uh, 21st of April, we've had new EU regulations around the treatment of composite goods coming in. And while we've not seen the most immediate impacts of that, as the borders have continued mostly to allow those goods to come through without problems, what we've also seen is the closure of business to consumer channels in composites uh, because of those new requirements, which just do not work um, uh, under those new rules. Okay. Emily, is that chiming with some of the things that you've been hearing? Thank you very much, Nikki, and really interesting to, to hear those numbers, uh, Dominic. And I, I wonder to what extent you can separate this from a, a COVID and a Brexit factor. Um, I mean, in a way, the the big uh, the big word that I heard there was exports, but effectively prior to the first of January twenty twenty one, those weren't exports. They were um, they were movement or commercialization of goods within an internal market. Um, 
from the moment that we're now um, no longer, we we're going to be exporting produce from uh, the UK uh, to the EU, then you have to take into consideration all these exportation requirements. I mean, ultimately, I think that what's going to happen here is it's going to be a steep learning curve in terms of learning how to export. Um, effectively, many of the SMEs have been trading within an internal market and are now going to have to learn international trade. And that isn't the same, uh, it isn't the same requirements that it puts on a company, as you mentioned. Um, but then in, in that learning process, you will also have the opportunity to access markets uh, which are much further away than the European Union, because once you've made that adjustment internally, it applies uh, worldwide. So um, I think that there's going to be, yes, some adjustment. Uh, it would be interesting now to see uh, with the reopening, obviously, of the food services uh, sector um, in the UK, but also in the EU, how that affects uh, numbers. Thank you, Emily. Clodagh, you obviously work with food and drink manufacturers on their export plans. Um, what sort of things are you hearing from, from your clients? Um, I think pretty much um, uh, mirroring what Emily and, and Dominic have said, it, it is this huge learning curve that they have and um, the need to get around, particularly on the EU side, obviously, is the need to get their heads around all the um, extra um, paperwork. Um, but equally, and it was interesting to hear Dominic mention haulage. Um, you know, we are hearing that that's a huge issue. They can't get drivers in the way that they used to be able to get drivers. The, 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 the um, European drivers have, have stayed uh, in Europe. They went back because of COVID. They haven't come back. And obviously, Brexit isn't helping that. So there is definitely issues on supply chain um, as well as all the, the, the paperwork. That said, there is a real hunger and a recognition to grow. Most companies recognise to grow that they really do need to start looking at exports. Um, and I think, you know, that's very much where the challenge is in terms of that um, learning curve that they have. And now they had a they had a market on their doorstep with the EU that was, as Emily said, an internal market. And suddenly they've got to understand all the rules of that. Um, it will stand them in good stead um, in terms of more international business. But for now, yeah, it, it, it is a learning curve. And I think there will be bumps along the way for, for a lot of companies. OK, thank you. So, so that's sort of exports in general. Returning to the exam question of the, the panel, which is around the, the trade deals. And obviously, as, as mentioned, government is seeing the um, striking of these trade deals um, as one of the sort of the, the big pluses of, of Brexit. Where are we? Or with those, I mean, we, we've heard sort of there's uh, Australia underway, possibly New Zealand, um, further renegotiations of, of other deals in trade. Dominic, can you sort of give us a, a quick overview of, of where we're at with all of those? I, I can. I, I wouldn't want to say too much on Australia because we have the expert on the panel here. Uh, but I think all, all indications are pointing to the fact that that is the most advanced in terms of progress and the uh, uh, heavy media coverage we've seen of the last week would suggest that we are moving towards agreement in principle in early June, hopefully, uh, albeit there are some bumps in the roads politically in the UK to uh, traverse first. Um, on New Zealand, I think things are a little bit further behind on that, but I think the signs are that the, the talks are progressing. There are, as ever, some difficult areas that need to be addressed. And as always, I think the sort of last bits are the agri-food uh, elements because they are the most challenging quite often uh, but I think we remain optimistic that a deal with New Zealand can be struck in the near future. Uh, a very interesting one that, um, that, that 
I guess people will have picked up on is around the proposed accession to the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, quite a mouthful and I'm out of breath saying it, uh, but CPTPP partnership um, brings together a group of different stakeholders, many of which we have uh, trade deals with already or we're currently negotiating with as the case for Australia and New Zealand. Uh, and that's a, a different sort of deal and one that businesses need to really get looking at to understand what it means for them. I've, I've been working on that over the last few weeks, looking at things like the rules of origin and it, which rules of origin, uh, I mean, I say the word and people back out of the room, uh, can be very, very off-putting, but they are things that, that can be quite easily understood. And actually looking at those rules of origin, they they are quite understandable if, if lengthy. Uh, but they're things that businesses need to be looking at because the rules of origin and CPTPP are one of the, the really sort of critical elements that could be good for businesses or could represent a challenge. Um, alongside that, obviously, we've got the USA. Um, things have been held up somewhat by the political developments in the US with the change of presidency. Uh, and I think there's quite a lot of talk that um, whether or not we'll see further progress this year uh, and how much the possibility of progress is tied up with getting a long-term solution uh, for trade and the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, and then finally, there's, there's uh, just to add to this small number of trade deals, there's quite a big piece of work that is launching right now around the renegotiating, renegotiation of some of the uh, rollover deals of the EU. So on Tuesday of this week, we saw the launch of a consultation from DIT on trade with Canada and with Mexico. And there are more of those sorts of consultations coming up in the near future on some of those renegotiations and the possibility of a trade deal with India, uh, which seems to have been uh, uh, picking up some of the headlines in recent weeks. So no shortage of activity there for businesses. But yes, I must admit, I've been practicing the CPTPP because I thought that was probably one that was gonna trick us up there with those initials there. Um, that segues us nicely into Kyle, actually, and the Australian trade deal. I mean, obviously, that's sort of uh, imminent, hopefully. Um, what, what are you able to sort of tell us about what, what that will be and, uh, and what the opportunities are? Yeah, no, thank you. So, I mean, just to pick up on what Dominic said um, in answer. So, you know, we really are at the moment in a, in, a, in a sprint. It's gone really well. So we had four rounds launched in 17 June last year. Uh, and uh, our minister and uh, and your secretary of state met for two days of talks last month, and then since that, we're really in a in a big intensification. And as Dominic said, we're looking to see if we can um, agree things in principle by uh, by the G7. Um, and we're optimistic, but there's a lot of hard work between now and then to get that done. Um, it's when people think of trade deals, they think of uh, tariff elimination and that's certainly an element of trade deals that you reduce the barriers to trade in terms of just the, the price on goods that are imported and exported um, and that's that's one element of it but there are all sorts of things that go into a trade deal a proper comprehensive trade deal addresses everything uh, behind the border barriers services and investment and if you're a food importer or exporter that may not seem so important but but those really are fundamental in getting the advantages out of a out of a free trade agreement um, because what those do is allow things like you know mobility of um, of skilled labor who can you know help you take advantage and find the opportunities for your business um, you know uh, promotion of of investment 
because if your business is going really well, then you know it's investment in the other market which really um, is is crucial to getting the advantages out of an FTA. And so the FTA we're looking to negotiate with the UK will address everything um, and will be really comprehensive. It's not just you know a, a list of um, a list of HS numbers on a tariff sheet and and reducing the the, the cost of those, but it's going to it's going to cover the whole lot. Um, and as as uh, Dominic uh, and and others have pointed to, it's also, you know, we think a really good stepping stone to uh, to UK membership of the CPTPP, which is a you know combined economies of nine trillion dollars. Uh, so a lot of um, you know a really big opportunity for for the UK there as well. Thank you. Um, question really, I think for for Emily and then then maybe Cloder. Um, obviously sort of businesses will be looking to sort of increase their, their trade in australia hopefully as a result of this what do you think businesses are going to find as some of the the challenges um if they're not used to, to dealing with an australian market so what are some of the sort of logistical issues i imagine there will be some sort of things like short shelf life products that sort of thing um what do you think could be some of the things that businesses will have to think about Thank you. I mean, perhaps on the the Australian market, um, Carl will be better placed than I to to provide you with some uh, some uh, key references there. Um, I, I think I just wanted to pick up on on his excellent points right now, which are that trade deals go far beyond just you know uh, HS codes, um, and it's not all about tariff elimination, although tariff elimination is very important, obviously, because that has huge impact on the competitiveness um, of, you know, of your trade. Um, but what they do, and I think that this also may be feeding in, if I, if I'm, if I may, um, feeding into the current debate around trade in the UK, um, trade deals set standards so they're an opportunity to actually create level playing fields between businesses, Australian businesses, British businesses, um, and align standards. And that actually provides not only opportunities to make sure that uh, you're competing on the same level. So for instance, we can have um, different provisions on animal welfare put into uh, some of the, the, the chapters, environment, uh, sustainability. Now we look at climate issues, obviously, in these trade agreements as well. And all of those provide us with a better trading environment, which actually make our markets closer. And in doing so, they incentivize investment. So it's it really is a, a win-win. Now, just on questions of um, of shelf life products. I mean, if you have a a product which has a a, a short shelf life, perhaps Australia is not going to be your key market um, because you'll have to obviously engage in maritime logistics to get it there, and that obviously isn't going to be the easiest. Um, now that indeed we look at questions climate when we're looking at international trade. So the question of sending food to the other side of the world in a plane is, is not necessarily the, the sense of direction. However, it's about also looking at import competitiveness. So what are, for instance, the commodities that Australia might be able to provide to make our businesses more competitive when we go out together into these third markets? So in that case, it's more about building these um, uh, bilateral uh, supply chains uh, that allow both businesses to gain and go out into the world together. Um, and in that respect, having the framework of CPTPP is really interesting. Um, but CPTPP is more, I would call it sort of a framework contract. 
rather than uh, a comprehensive and ambitious trade agreement. Um, specifically um, in the area of food safety and others, it, it, it's, it just provides sort of the baseline to then have conversations with each of those members member countries uh, and look at uh, some of the, the more important provisions relating to market access. I'm not sure if Carl will agree with my assessment there. Carl? Yeah, so look, I mean, the the CPTPP is quite, you know, if, if you look at global trade deals, it's reasonably high, you know, this is you know, one of the leading trade deals that's around. Um, on um, you know, on uh, you know picking up on food standards and animal welfare, certainly you know the the deal that we would be looking to strike with you know with the UK would be tailored towards our bilateral relationship. Whereas, of course, um, you know CPTPP are a number of different countries, a number of different levels of development that are included. Um, the you know and for Australia, and I know there's I mean I've been I read the newspapers as well, so I, I can see that there's a lot of um, public interest in issues like animal welfare um, on that. So I might just pick up on that point um, head on um, anyway. Um, but, you know, it, that's actually, it's a huge priority for the Australian government as well. And, um, you know, the, the organisation, the World Organisation for Animal uh, Health, is, which is called the OIE, I think it's a French um, uh, name, uh, actually independently audited uh, Australia's animal welfare standards. Uh, and they've got a rating um, out of five, and five being the best. And, uh, and Australia was found to to be to have the highest level of animal uh, welfare standards. In the, in, you know, so at, at the top rank in the in the world, um, we do have a lot of you know really deep dialogue as between our respective countries anyway, and our chief you know, veterinary officers, um, and our current chief veterinary officer, actually president of of the OIE. Um, so. Um, yeah, we're, we're very uh, committed to high standards, high food standards, high animal well standards. And the trade that Australia already sends to the UK at the moment um, obviously meets UK standards um, because otherwise it wouldn't go in the door. Uh, so there, the, some of the uh, sort of queries aren't, you know, they're not necessarily, that I've seen in the papers anyway, a little bit alarmist, but they're not necessarily matched by the facts. But, but any deal, obviously, that we have with the UK will be tailored towards the bilateral relationship that we've got as between the two countries. And, um, uh, you know, we're, we're obviously very keen to uh, to get the best deal that we can. But it's it's easy in some ways because both countries are committed to really high standards. Thank you. Can I just bring in Cloda here? Because I know this is something that we, we touched on in our discussions before the, the panel, didn't we, as well, for your, your thoughts on that? Yeah, my view is, um, I mean, in terms of you, you kind of uh, mentioned what are the barriers to, to, to companies. And if I think of um, the sector and, and, and a lot of them being SMEs as opposed to big multinationals who will have offices in a number of these markets and, and will have manufacturing units already in these markets. But the SME sector here won't. And, and my biggest kind of concern for them or, or the area where I think the biggest challenge will be insights um, in terms of, um, you know, should they go after Australia? It's not going to be a cheap market in terms of, you know, doing the, the, the understanding how to segment, to target, to position their products, their brands to, to, to be successful there. So I think the biggest bit will be that bit when they're developing their strategies and, and deciding whether to um, uh, export to um, some of these new uh, markets 
is how do they understand if the opportunity exists and, and if that opportunity exists, what's the size of that? Um, to, 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 to be successful, you've got to have deep insight in terms of consumers and Australian consumers are not the same as UK consumers. Um, and, and for us, I think that's one of the biggest you know, challenges. And I think going back to Emily's point about, you know, it's, it's going to be a challenge for chilled companies, to, 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 uh, fresh companies to get products there. But actually, is there an opportunity if you reformulate, can you, you, know, can you freeze your product? you know, and, and, and actually ship it then as, as a frozen product and, and just freeze thaw when you get to the market. But again, to invest in that kind of technology means that the companies really need to understand the size of the opportunity. And I think that's the, the bit where I think there's a, a, a disconnect between talking about these fantastic opportunities and how companies can really access them in a way that actually will drive real growth mm -hmm. um, rather than being a, a drain on resources. Could, can I pop in there actually, just with with a with a with a response to that? Because as governments, one of the things we we want to do is to facilitate the opportunities. And so, for Australia, we have um, an organisation called Austrade, but I know that DIT has a parallel function um, in the UK, where we look to try and identify and work with companies to see how to take advantage of opportunities that are there. Um, absolutely and uh, can i just and i and i know nikki knows i feel passionately about this i just feel that the food and drink sector as as has been already said today is the largest manufacturing sector in the uk but dit is not specialists in food and drink and i think hmm. insights that food and drink companies need are very different to insights that other industries and other industry sectors might need and i think um, a really good model a government model of that is is probably the irish model with Borbia, who who have dedicated food and drink resources in a number of their key target markets and, and I think given the size of the sector in the UK it's a real missed opportunity for the UK government um, so yeah but I do get the DIT absolutely Kyle and I know that you guys do absolutely support Australian companies coming in into here in the UK absolutely and giving them that insight but I just do feel passionately that food and drink companies are you know really need insights that are um, uh, relevant to the sector rather than just broad broad brush yeah, obviously one of the things that we'd really hope to be able to, uh, to quiz Rupert on um, on the panel was, was what the support was going to look like for, for UK businesses. Um, and that's that's a really good point, which I'm sure, I'm sure all of you've got your view on. So really, what, what, it, what are we looking for from government really to translate that ambition of making this work into making this actually work um, for all sides of businesses? But obviously, sort of as, as Clodagh says, you know, particularly focus on the SMEs who are probably starting from a lower base than some of the, the bigger ones. So... Um, uh, Dominic, what, what sort of things are we hearing from members? Uh, so, I mean, we, this is something we've been working on for about four or five years now under government's industrial strategy. We had proposals that we put into government looking at examples of excellence, as Cloda highlights, that Broad Beer are absolutely brilliant at what they do. Austrade are, are brilliant at what they do. Um, Scotland Food and Drink do a fantastic job for the Scottish industry. The challenge we have in the UK is Actually, there is some good support out there. It's just a bit all over the place. Uh, so there's pockets of excellence regionally. Um, DIT do excellent work in a number of markets. So they put in place with AHDB support in China and in the Gulf. Uh, but what works in one market doesn't work in another. And they just don't have that sort of consistent framework to make it work. We've said repeatedly that what we need is a support body for England, because at the moment there is nothing for England whatsoever. And if you have a support body for England, 
you can then bring together the four nations with DIT as part of a food and drink export council that can collaborate and coordinate and stop us competing with each other in overseas markets and get these campaigns actually joined up and you know getting more bang for our buck in doing that i think we also as well as the sort of in uh, domestic support side we also need more support on the ground both opening up and maintaining market access in in markets where you see that we open up market access in china it's a real fight to keep that open uh, and so you need people on the ground in some of those markets to make sure we don't lose it but we also need commercial support to help people turn these opportunities into business. And I think the thing that I feel is lacking is we're doing all these trade negotiations. We don't necessarily have a parallel track in advance of these deals being done that looks to line these, uh, this new business up so it's ready to take advantage of these trade deals when they come over the line. And that's something we see Austrade doing well in the UK. We say, see the New Zealand government doing that well in the UK. And I think that's a miss. And, and the final point I'll make is I think on e-commerce, we've seen a huge shift towards e-commerce because of the current situation where people can't travel, where trade fairs are not happening around the world. DIT has invested money in e-commerce and they've launched a campaign to get more business to business mentoring taking place, which I think is commendable and something that we support. But I think there needs to be a much stronger drive on that front to really take advantage and push the UK to being the country that's at the absolute forefront of the, the e-commerce revolution for exporting food and drink. And I think that's that's an opportunity that is there to be taken right now. Yeah, I'll bring in Emily in, in a second just to um, ex expand on all of this and the government support thing. But actually, just on the e-commerce point um, and how important you, you feel it is, Kai, what's what's the sort of um, Austrade perspective on that? Is, is that something you focus heavily on? So, well, I'm not on Austrade. I'm, I, so, um, Austrade's a different department. So, I, I work on the trade policy side. Um, but what, look, so e-commerce um, and digital trade form will that will form a part of every major trade negotiation that we're involved in. We're also we've also been leading a push in the WTO to get some commitments in the broad in the broader WTO on e-commerce, um, which is something we've been doing for for some time because we recognise that it's. You know, at the moment, it's a little bit of a wild west. You know, the the last I think the um, uh, you know the last time uh, uh, electronic trade was was really agreed in the in the WTO was sort of nineteen ninety four, and they were still talking about fax machines. So we we really you know there really is an opportunity to do more there. Um, and as two countries who are really on the cutting edge of digital trade, as Australia and the UK are. Um, we have an opportunity to help shape uh, what the global rules of the road are um, to the advantage of our businesses. Uh, and uh, digital trade will help facilitate goods trade uh, very much. So um, we're working with the UK government as well. Um, and our, we, we have respective missions in Geneva who are very, you know, who work very closely together um, to, try and, to try and do things. And we're very keen for the UK as a new independent member um, of the WTO to um to sort of uh you know join join the effort to to liberalize trade and and, and including in, in getting some some ambitious standards on e-commerce yeah, absolutely okay lovely go, go back to emily um with some of the points there that dominic was was raising is is that something that you would broadly reflect 
So, I mean, perhaps it's a good opportunity here to make that differentiation, actually, that Carl's just made. There really are two big um, uh, pillars to what we need from governments when we're looking at um, uh, facilitating trade. And it's on the one side, trade promotion, and on the other side, trade policy. And they do tend to be two different, uh, let's say, tracks, right? And both are very important and need to be mutually supportive. So on the trade promotion side, essentially, you need to have people in the market that you're trying to access um, that can bring the insights, the data that Clodo was also mentioning, that can provide opportunities, for instance, to get you that meeting with your buyers, uh, get your foot in the door, uh, and really help you in your step-to-step -to -step towards, um, let's say, the, the, the maturing of your export process. Um, they're also generally the export uh, promotion uh, teams uh, generally are the ones that look at uh, uh, your your um, uh, fares um, and um, other sort of uh, commercial missions to the country. On the other side, you have trade policy uh, teams. And in this case, um, if we look at some of the best practices from around the world, and I'm particularly acquainted with the case of, of France, uh, which has in, invested thoroughly in having a lot of uh, food and agricultural attaches out into the markets around the world, uh, based in the embassies. They do two things. They look at how we can um, um, uh, perhaps uh, um, straighten out certain issues that we might have on the uh, sanitary and phytosanitary front. And sometimes these can be done without a trade deal. So it's important to keep that in mind. And also to keep in mind that when we do have a trade deal, it doesn't resolve everything. So you're, you're always going to have to sit at the table and negotiate uh, uh, via administrative or technical documents, uh, facilitation beyond um, your, your trade deal. Um, even if you have a very robust, robust uh, sanitary and phytosanitary chapter. So these two teams working together um, really are the, the, the magic source, I would say, to um, international trade, um, and particularly for the food and drink industry. If we look at best practices, again, it's also about having a solid approach to social media. Um, how, is, how is the British uh, food and drink uh, industry going to position itself uh, internationally and, uh, I would say, in a diversified manner, which is um, appropriate for each market, because if each market does not um, seafood in the same way. Uh, we can see that just in the UK in terms of uh, approaches to innovation, or um, we were mentioning animal welfare. There are some countries that will have, um, that will put a higher price on certain of those items than others, right? So knowing the market is really essential and also being able to reflect the right reputation of your industry abroad as a whole, um, it, it does absolutely uh, um, have an impact on the ground. Yeah. But that's actually sort of leading into one of the questions I was going to follow up with, actually. Sort of what what um, is is Britain's sort of USP? What in terms of food? I mean, we, we quite often hear um, people valuing British food because it's perceived as sort of safe, high quality, the sort of heritage assessment, that heritage um, sort of value of it, that, that sort of thing. Um, and you've just said that it's, it's different for different markets. Um, but if I may uh, touch upon that point, um, I think that that might be the British self-perception, 
of, of, of British food and drink. Um, actually, when I look at uh, the perception from outside uh, the UK, it tends to be much more related to fantastic innovation, uh, great design, um, much more um, innovative, innovative products, uh, new brands, great marketing. Um, the the, the self-perception and the perception of your uh, importing market can be quite different. So that's also one to keep in mind. Yeah. Um, Claire, I suppose sort of say the same question to you really as well, because you're working with these these businesses all the time and obviously sort of, you know, um, drawing up their plans with them. How, how do you go about working with them to, to sort of make themselves, um, you know, sort of indispensable, valued in the sectors that they're aiming to get into? I, I think um, I sort of think on what Emily said there and actually having done quite a bit of work um, in Europe and in a number of categories, I mean, it is interesting to see how particularly European retailers, they've always looked to the UK in terms of best practice and innovation and, and market trends in terms of product development. Um, and I think that reflects what Emily says, that actually UK manufacturing, particularly in food and drink, is very innovative. Um, there's some very strong, um, uh, you know, uh, things, whether it's around health, whether it's around um, uh, sustainability, whatever it might be, you know, that from a, a domestic perspective, UK manufacturers are, are, are um, really leading class. And I think the bit for us is how can they harness that um, and take that at an individual company level into the market that they want to go at? Um, I think it's hard at the moment. There isn't an umbrella British brand to go after you know we, we see it i mean that there obviously will be pockets where we're where we're trading on tradition and 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 um you know past colonial links and stuff like that but but the reality is is that companies need to find their own way and and to really understand where they fit in their category in each individual market so for us um as we would do with companies here in the uk um it's, it's no different it is really about understanding the, the the consumer and the segment that buys into your category um deciding which one of those segments um you want to target and then very much positioning your product to to meet the needs of that target now to do that it sounds very simple and straightforward um, the STP process, but actually the reality is, is you need a lot of market data. You need to walk the floors of, of retailers or food service outlets. Um, you need to understand what your competitor set is, who's there, what it looks like, um, and who it appeals to, and then really work out what you've got to offer that is different over and above, but it's going to be different and relevant. And I think that's the key the key bit that we do with companies. Um, obviously, we're fortunate in that we do that whole bit from the data analysis right through to consumer insights work. So, um, but it is that that takes time. And I think it is about companies recognizing that it is time, a cost, uh, you know, the cost is time, but also really investing in, in getting it and, and the insights right. Um, and that's, as I said, it's no different to what companies do here. And, and, and in terms of, you know, when they've got to go for a retail listing here or a food service listing here, they've got to justify um, why a buyer should take you. Um, equally, they've got to be prepared to put the same legwork into any markets that they want to. It's just a bit harder when it's not on your doorstep. Um, and, and again, as you know, as Dominic said, you know, if the more support that they can be made available to companies in terms of really um, particularly the initial bit about is the market worth me even spending the time, you know, that first piece of, of, of analysis, um, you know, if, if, if that was made available to companies, I think you'd find there were more who are ambitious and then go to the next stage um, of, of commissioning their own primary research. 
Yeah. Okay. So I suppose also that sort of question to, to Kyle really, sort of how how Australian companies are, are are tackling this. You know, how how are they sort of developing their their propositions for for getting out there? Yeah. Look, um, one of the one of the things that really changed with Australian companies, and I'll, I might do a slight detour to a history lesson, but um, you know, so we we actually had a bit of a reckoning um, way back in. Um, 1973, we lost access to the UK market um, originally um, when you joined the European Economic Community. Um, where because it was very easy, we you know just sent goods over and there was you know imperial preference. And then suddenly we had to find new markets, and there was a real um, there had to be a real a real shift both at a government level and 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 for companies to get into a sort of a more competitive um, uh, export focused mindset. Um, and um, that it, it really is a there's a philosophy of the businesses that we found the businesses had to take and that, and you know the example I give is the is the wine industry which was sort of really small um, in Australia in the 1970s and they've you know they've never had any subsidies they've never there's never been any um, real, real level of government support but um, they took the opportunities to to really be innovative and use science and and to to essentially produce the best wine possible at, at the lowest price and then be price competitive with other established um, producers who um, or, you know had had strong market positions and that that industry sort of sprang from nothing um, and that was. I mean, a lot of that was just business being innovative and then learning from each other. And, and there was a sort of an ecosystem of, of well, uh, you know, the, the, next, the farmer next door can do it, then we can do it. And some of these are not large companies. Obviously, there are large wine producers, but some of them are, you know, there are, there are sort of also family vineyards who are involved and 99% of Australian uh, farm businesses are family owned. Um, so part of it is a, is a culture. Um, as governments, we helped. So we didn't subsidise people for production. The, the assistance we gave to our producers was, um, you know, was largely um, co-funding of R&D to make them become more competitive and, and innovative. So that was a lot of the agricultural support we gave rather than for, you know, per hectare or, or, or you know, or, or out of production. And so it was um, the subsidisation we gave was to make companies more competitive rather than encouraging them essentially to become less competitive uh, on in the global marketplace um, and uh, you know essentially you had government and business working together to 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 change the mindset and then once they do that they're prepared to um, you know as was said earlier once you've taken that on board and you get the processes in place to become an independent um, international export company, then you've got a market of eight billion people, rather than your, you know, in Australia's case, twenty-five million, or in the, you know, case of the UK, sixty-six million, um, or four hundred and fifty if you're looking at the EU. So there's, and and the opportunities then take care of itself because you've got the processes up and running, um, and you've got the systems up and running as well in order to do the market research to find, you know. What is it? What is it about this market that's, that that is there a gap that we can then take advantage of? 
And then what we try and do as businesses with FTAs is to try and you know clear some of the undergrowth in terms of services and investments so that if you need advice, you need professional advice you can take advantage of to decide whether or not there's a market opportunity worth taking, then any of the regulatory barriers that might exist in terms of getting that and the, and the infrastructure and the you know, legal help and accounting help or whatever, all of that's cleared away. So we very much treat it as a sort of a holistic thing that, you know, what are the possible barriers to trade on a, on a policy perspective and then, you know, to some extent in a cultural perspective and how can we, how can we, how can we get rid of them and then how can we encourage um, companies to be more export focused um, and then it, you get a virtuous circle essentially that, that's created. Um, and for Australia's perspective, the other things we did, you know, we went, it wasn't just trade liberalisation. We went through a, a lot of trade liberalisation, particularly in the 1980s, and it was, it was unilateral. It wasn't through trade deals just because it was better for, for Australian businesses to do so. Um, but, you know, it, it went hand in hand with sort of fiscal policy and microeconomic reform and, all, you know, all sorts of the levers the government can pull to get a more competitive economy. Um, and that was a bipartisan approach. Both both governments of both stripes were committed to the same goal. So complicated answer, but there's a lot of different steps. But it, it essentially involves a, a philosophical change from both uh, government and, and business working together. Yeah. Okay. That's fine. I'm just keeping a, a quick eye on the, on the chat box at the moment, um, just in case there's any questions. Um, and uh, there's some coming through. We've got about 15 minutes, so I just want to um, divert into answering a couple of those. Uh, when would they be an equivalent to EU traces for the UK to track supply chain managed goods? We're struggling with exporting organic goods to the EU, um, which actually ties into another question that we were about to ask, um, which is actually going to be aimed at Kyle. But uh, is uh, somebody happy to, to pick that up? So is this referring to, to the treaty system? Uh, it doesn't say. Um, it says, when will there be a credit to EU traces for the UK to track and supply chain managed goods be struggling with exporting goods to the UK? Perhaps if um, whoever's asked the question could just clarify that, then perhaps we'll, we'll come back to that in a second. But I was actually just going to, to segue into a question about organic, actually, which is something that Dominic um, and I were, were discussing when we were talking about questions for the panel. I mean, obviously, um, prior to, to EU exit, the situation for organic producers in the UK um, was one of the ones that was causing particular concern. Um, Australia is obviously a, a leader in terms of organic agricultural production. So what, what do you think the benefits of a, a UK-Australia agreement can deliver for organic producers on both sides, Kyle? Look, I don't. I mean, I wouldn't want to limit it to, to organic produce. To, to be honest, I mean, the, the opportunities are there equally for organic and non-organic. Um, what we want to do is to make opportunities for for food trade, you know, right across the board. Um, uh, I can't go into detail about the specifics of what's being negotiated, unfortunately, because um, that's um, you know during a trade negotiation, um, those you know. Uh, those are kept reasonably tightly among the negotiating teams, but um, the um, you know we're we're really looking for very you know opportunities for for all producers, but obviously that includes organic producers. Yeah. Okay, just having a look to see whether there's any uh, additional questions. Yeah, I maybe jump in on the organic question. Um, 
when we're looking at the European market, which is still going to be relevant as an export market to British producers, um, even with a, an exit from the single market, um, in, 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 at a European level, there is a new strategy called the Farm to Fork strategy, and that is put into um, um, specific objectives, one of which is to now get 25% of production in Europe at an organic level very, very ambitious by 2030. So it's a very ambitious target. What that's going to do is it's going to put a lot of pressure on retailers in Europe um, to up their objectives in terms of um, lowering costs of organics, but also making more availability of organics to consumers. So when we look at the European market, um, it's an important element. And then what trade deals do, and um, I, I won't go into any of the specifics, um, but, but what trade deals do is that they can allow, for instance, to have recognition of specific certification schemes. Um, organic producers will need to be certified in terms of for their export market in the same way that, you know, um, uh, organic producers in the rest of the world that export to the UK today need to be certified under agencies or different institutions that uh, that basically uh, are accredited by the UK. So a couple of things to keep in mind there. Lovely. Thank you, Emily. Right. Just to return to the, the question that we've, we've been asked, I've got a bit more uh, clarity from, from Carol. Thank you very much for the, the question there, Carol. Um, she says, yes, it, it is the traces system. And she says we've also lost the import tracking system. Um, so she's asking when will there be an equivalent to EU traces for the UK to track supply chain managed goods? We are struggling with exporting organic goods to the UK. So um, is there anything to to pick up on that? Is it, I can see you not, nodding, Emily. Is, is that something you'd like to take? <laughs> So they're, they're two different systems. You've got IPAFs and you've got uh, you've got Tracy's and you've got the RASP system, right? So one uh, which is basically to input your different uh, health certificates uh, and so forth that is being replicated in the UK under a new system called IPAFs, uh, which is for the import of plants, animals, feed and food. Um, and I, I'm not sure how. Uh, the exact software is uh, is is being developed and what exact um, items it includes, but it should be a mirroring of Tracy's. Now, on the other hand, RASP is the system that basically allows um, uh, customs uh, throughout the EU uh, when they do uh, do physical checks on goods and that if there is a faulty load, which happens um, regularly for different reasons, it can be uh, either a, a real health and sanitary issue, but it can also be simply um, poor labeling or, uh, or, or something that's happened in transport. Um, in that case, in, in Europe, there is a uh, an alert that goes through the RASP system and that is communicated to all customs agents across the 27 member states. Um, obviously, now that the UK is no longer part of that system, they no longer are part of this common uh, customs uh, alert system, which is transparent in the fact that it is accessible to everybody online. So you can see where things are being stopped and how and what and why. Um, and I, I'm not aware that the UK is going to be replicating that for uh, nationally. Okay, uh, anybody else want to come in on that at all or does that, uh, that cover it really? Nope, okay, hopefully that was useful, Carol. Obviously, if, um, if that doesn't answer it, then uh, please do get back in touch with us again and we'll, we'll try and help you out on that. Um, just also in the chat box there, uh, Stephen Noblet, who is the uh, Food and Drink Special Sector 
advisor for uh, Yorkshire and Humber has also just reminded that there are uh, DIT food and drink regional advisors that can also um, help you with with issues should you need to so uh, thanks for that Stephen. Um, we have just a few minutes remaining on the panel so I think what would be useful is if we could just hear from each of the panellists on what they would advise uh, more or less a sort of a, a top tips for companies that are thinking of maybe branching out um, either into exports for the first time or perhaps looking at different uh, different markets to to cover um could uh, dominic would you you like to start with that on things that you think from what you've heard from our members might be useful it's a very good question uh, and i don't say that just because i wrote it uh but uh, I'm, I'm i'm not quite sure where to start with it i guess it depends what market you're looking at and it's understanding what is out there in terms of support both in the uk through trade associations through the regional uh, trade advisors as stephen said through DIT, through you know countless regional bodies and things like that, and seeing what free help uh, uh, and you know help through your memberships can provide you to understand what's out there. So, for example, Defra produced uh, and commissioned a number of different market reports on uh, food and drink in uh, I think at least three or four different markets that were published a few months ago, and I think got somewhat lost because the news was so focused on uh, the uh, end of the transition period. So firstly, doing that research, seeing what's available. Um, and then uh, I guess if it's if it's trade through an existing trade agreement, the one that I always advise businesses to understand are the rules of origin. And I'm a rules of origin evangelist. I've spent four months talking only about rules of origin with businesses. They look very, very unpleasant and difficult. They don't need to be. You just need to know, you know where your product is made, where the ingredients come from and then cross-tabulate that with the rules. They, they don't need to be that difficult. And I'm, I'm working with a business at the moment that uh, has been trading with Japan for some time, and they've just got a message through saying, why don't we do this through the uh, new Japan trade agreement instead of paying tariffs? And I think one of the problems that we've got is that we have trade agreements, businesses don't use them because they think they're too difficult, and it just doesn't need to be that way. So. Uh, you know, if you're struggling with that, come and speak to me or speak to DIT or speak to, to Cloda or or countless uh, people like us out there that can help you. Lovely, thank you. I think there's probably very few people in the whole of the UK that know more about rules of origin than, than Dominic does. So um, very good advice there. Uh, Cl Cloda, sort of ideas from you. Yeah, I mean, what I would just say to companies is is um, absolutely look to export and, and make the most of these trade um, deals, but do it as part of a, a strategic plan. So I, I don't think, you know, I think bolting export onto a Friday afternoon, um, you know, is, isn't going to work. So I think for us, it's about planning for export. Um, and, and that is about doing, you know, recognizing that you need to spend time up front. So don't be impatient about it. You know, do your kind of understanding which is the right market for you and, and things like, as Dominic has said, things like, you know, rules of origin and, and understanding those, um, you know, in, in, as part of your upfront research will really pay dividends. And then it is about just, um, you know, once you've decided which markets to go after um, and you are prioritizing them, um, it really is about spending the time to understand where you will um, play in that market and, and, and why your product will succeed. Um, and if you do that homework, the chances of success are, are um, increased hugely. So I, I think for us, it is about make sure you plan for export and, and you know, it isn't something that you just decide to do on a whim um, because it takes time, it takes resources um, and don't underestimate um, the resources that you'll, you'll need, but absolutely it can pay dividends um, if you do the work up front. 
Yes. Do, do you find that companies invest enough time, do you think, in it? Or, or is that is it something that companies assume is going to be relatively easy and, and completely underestimate? What, what sort of experiences do you find with people that you work with? Um, a real mix, um, a mix of, of, of two. I mean, some really will step back. I mean, we're doing a project actually for a company coming into the UK at the moment and where they've actually really taken time to, to step back to really work out, um, you know, where they could play in the UK market. Um, and, you know, there isn't a non-realistic deadline in terms of both the, the, the data and the consumer um, insights piece um, for them. Um, but equally, we will have some who think I've got a product and I'm going to sell it and, and they sort of come to you with their proposition um, and, and really want that to fit in um, rather than really understanding the consumer piece. So I think um, I think companies that have been bitten once do actually recognise the need to step back and, and, and take time. I think other times companies, um, you know, just have a lucky deal at a, at, at a trade fair. And again, the problem with that is that it's not part of an overall plan. Um, and then they suddenly realise they haven't worked out a, a marketing support plan. They haven't work together what kind of motions they need to drive it so they will get their listing but it will you know it, it may not last behind it so I think there's a real mix and, and I would say some small companies are brilliant at it um, and equally I would say some larger companies that you think would be investing in this kind of insight don't um, but you know there, there's yeah I, I think um, we find it's a mix of, of companies but we would just say to all of them do step take the time, step back and plan for it, and then the, the chances of success are, are much greater. Yes. Uh, I won't ask you to, to name names because the, the good <laughs> ones will probably be inundated for people asking, you know, how, how do we do it? So, yeah. um, Emily, so the thought, thoughts from you. I think replicating a lot of what Claude has just said, it's really about making sure that the research is done well in advance. Um, I, I'd probably add two points to that, which is, it can be very counterintuitive. So sometimes uh, you think that there's a market out there for your product because you've set your mind to it. And actually um, the market that's, that looks like it has too much of your product is where you have more opportunities. So I'd see be open to the counterintuitiveness of, of market diversification when we're looking at export. Exports, And then the second thing, which is also a point that Claude just uh, uh, touched upon, which is the question of consistency. There is really no value in doing a single trade if there is not a plan afterwards to be consistent in your uh, customer relationship. So it can actually end up being uh, a problem down the line. So uh, making sure that there is a plan for consistency um, behind is also very important. Yes, yeah, very useful. We were talking about the the counterintuitive thing on our uh, our call before the the convention. I, I found that very interesting, actually. That uh, yeah, a lot of companies probably would think actually no, that's oversaturated. But as you say, it can actually have, have been a, a a sort of a um, generator uh, facilitator for actually uh, for actually you know, doing the more. The example really. being um, uh, countries such as Argentina, Brazil, Australia, who have ample beef production. Well, they also have consumers that really enjoy high quality beef. And so they are becoming export markets for the highest cuts of beef from all around the world. So, you know, uh, Brazil imports Wagyu beef from Japan. And you'd think that those are markets where there is no space, but actually it's the contrary. It's when there is quite a lot of availability that there is opportunity. So it, these are the kinds of counterintuitive uh, logics that sometimes we need to keep in mind. Fantastic, yeah. And just finally, Kyle, I mean, from an Australian perspective, what do UK 
companies need to be looking for it as and when we get the, uh, the sort of the deal and everybody's hugely yeah. enthusiastic exported to Australia. I mean, firstly, I think it was a former US president who said the scariest words in the English language were, you know, we're from government and we're here to help. Um, I fundamentally disagree with that. Uh, government is there to help. So definitely speak to DIT and others. In, for Australia, we have a portal, FTA portal, that that uh, consumers can click onto to see whether or not they can take advantage of a uh, of an FTA. Um, but and uh, but in any event, you know there there will be someone in HMG who is um, you know really really uh, wanting to hear from you and really wanting to help you out. Um, and uh, so take advantage of that. Uh, what Dominic said about rules of origin is is definitely right. Rules of origin are your passport to taking advantage of an FTA. And they look complicated, but what they are is is the path to getting the, the best out of an FTA. Um, and just uh, picking up on on something that that Clodagh said, um, as a business, you know, if you are looking to uh, export overseas, you're you're wanting to make that a, a long term thing. It's a long term investment, so you need to be thinking about um, the inputs that you're going to be required to service that and the reliability of supply. You know, the, the businesses that succeed overseas are ones that um, can demonstrate that they've got, that they can commit to long-term reliable supply of goods and then they get long-term supply contracts out of that. And then they can use those long-term supply contracts to, to as, a, uh, as a tool for further investment and then things grow from there. So, um, you know, we have large investors who, so large exporters who, um, you know, say for primary produce, start importing goods from competing countries to to supply the domestic market so they don't lose access to those international markets. Um, and that's, a, again, the counterintuitive thing that Emily was talking about. Um, you know, we have, you know, we have sugar, we have sugar exporters who import from Thailand. Um, so, so which is obviously one of the largest sugar uh, exporters in the world. Now, now you, the, the once, once you're in the game of international trade, then um, it's not about you know am I import am I importing or exporting? It's about am I maximising my business? Am I am I maximising my ability to find and secure and supply reliably the markets that enable my business to grow? And if you're thinking in that sort of uh, a mindset, then you know you're you're well on on track to to doing well out of it, out of FTAs and the opportunities that they that they offer. So um, I'd like to thank our, our panellists, Emily, Kyle, Clodagh and uh, Dominic, especially for stepping in a short notice as well there. Um, we now have a break for 20 minutes and we'll be resuming at uh, 11.50 when my colleague Mark Corbett will be rejoining with his panel, which is focusing on exploring the challenges for SMEs and how we can help them grow, particularly focusing on innovation. So thank you very much again for our panellists for joining us. Um, just to also give a, a quick plug to some of the FDF courses that we're running. We're, um, we've just brought online a few courses, both with, with Cloda um, and the Leftcliffe colleagues there, and also some on export boot camps as well. So if there's any information that you'd like about any of those courses, um, it's at fdf.org.uk under the events section. So uh, thank you very much for joining us. Mm -hmm.